It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, June 9th, 2023. I'm Chad Pergram. Democrats are gearing up for the 2024 elections, hoping they can use some recent legal losses at the Supreme Court to fire up their base and target Republicans in vulnerable seats. It's an attempt to kind of, I guess, uh, tap into outrage or to, or to create or harness outrage over these particular issue um, decisions to um, cobble together a constellation of voters that can help the Democrats win in 2024. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. Weather, both hot and cold, attacks both cyber and physical. A lot can impact our ability to get electricity, and lawmakers are growing more concerned about our aging grid infrastructure. This was a planned event. They knew exactly what their target was, uh, and they were able to accomplish their goal pretty easily uh, with the security level that they had at their facility there. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. While Republicans hoped for a red wave in last year's midterms, the Democrats defied expectations and overperformed, retaining control of the Senate, flipping governor's mansions around the country and holding on to more House seats than most pollsters expected. The Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade just months before made abortion access a key issue and fired up Democrats who turned out in record numbers. With the high court's recent decision to kill race-based admission programs at colleges and President Biden's student loan debt relief plan, Democrats hope they can once again use a legal loss to motivate their base to show up in 2024. I suppose most obviously the uh, institutional trust um, in the court has been declining, uh, not just as a function of the June and July decisions that we've been talking about, but over the last five or six years. Today, I'm joined by the co-director of the Fox News poll and professor at UT Austin, Darren Shaw. I guess, uh, you know, Republicans have always uh, had a high respect for the court, but it, it's, you know, kind of waned as Republicans generally have lost trust in governmental institutions. The court has been a little more resilient than most, but uh, but it's even taken a hit amongst Republicans. Uh, what's really changed, though, is the Democrats have gotten less and less um, enthralled with the court um, as they perceive the conservative majority is kind of pushed an agenda that they're not particularly comfortable with. Right. So um, so those are the kind of broad contours. But then more specifically, these particular decisions, um, I guess, most obviously Dobbs, but then some of the more recent rulings have increased the propensity of Democrats to favor or at least consider favoring proposed reforms of the court. Um, and that's kind of where we are right now. How aggressive do the Democrats want to be in kind of pushing their antipathy towards the rulings of the court. And that's something we've heard here, you know, that they want uh, Supreme Court justices to come and testify before Congress. In fact, in the next couple of days, there's going to be a markup session writing a piece of uh, legislation in the Senate Judiciary Committee to impose a code of ethics on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, they they actually don't have to adhere to some of the same uh, strictures of ethics that they do at the lower courts and, and other government officials do. They're kind of on their own here. And I think that's something that Democrats, even if they have trouble legislating that, getting that through the Senate and the House, uh, they can take that to the voters uh, because the court is unpopular. 
How much of this is an issue as it pertains to who got on the court? You know, Democrats feel like they, you know, didn't get their fair shake when uh, you had the death of Antonin Scalia in February of 2016. And uh, Mitch McConnell was then the majority leader in the Senate. And he said, we're not going to give Merrick Garland, who was the nominee, now the attorney general, a hearing because it's a presidential election year. And then they got somebody else, a Republican justice on the court uh, when President Trump was elected, Neil Gorsuch. We had quite an experience confirming Brett Kavanaugh in the fall of 2018. And then Mitch McConnell appeared to kind of change his tune in the fall of 2020, uh, saying, oh, we're going to run through Amy Coney Barrett just days before the election. Now, of course, Mitch McConnell said, you know, you have to go back to the 1880s to have a Senate of one party opposite the president confirm a justice of a president of the other party in an election year, uh, you know, so so his 2020, uh, you know, model kind of sinks up a little bit. But a lot of people thought that was a bridge too far because Democrats think that they really kind of got, uh, you know, the screws put to themselves, uh, you know, where they could have had three Supreme Court justices and at least two and they didn't get any. Right, right. I, I think the, the Garland situation in particular is really kind of stuck in the craw of, of liberals and Democrats. But um, but it, it is important to bear in mind there was nothing illegal, nothing unethical about what McConnell did. You could argue that it was dirty politics. I think there's a you know reasonable argument on those count, on those counts. But but if you look at what's happened, the, the, you know there's no question that the court is legitimate, right? What's happened is that mm -hmm. uh, the Democrats have had kind of a string of bad luck. It's not like the current court reflects. 20 years of Republican dominance of the executive, right, where, where Republicans were winning elections overwhelmingly and then appointing conservative justices, right? That was kind of the situation in the 1920s that Franklin Roosevelt, uh, you know, attempted to reform or deal with. And, and you know, when he, he had his court packing scheme and kind of raised the argument about the court not reflecting popular opinion. Well, right now, Republican dominance on the court has kind of been, you know, a bit fluky. Now, I don't, I don't mean illegitimate, but a bit fluky, right? Ruth Bader Ginsburg refuses to resign, um, hangs on even though she's, you know, has health problems and allows, um, you know, Donald Trump to win the presidency and then appoint uh, her successor. That, that's been kind of what's happened. Conservative justices have tended to step down and allow Republican presidents to replace them. And, and liberal justices have hung on, um, thinking that the Democrats were going to win the White House. It wouldn't be an issue. And then surprise, surprise, Republicans like Donald Trump end up winning. And, you know, so that's that's been kind of a, a real issue for the Democrats. However, you know, is what I think is is difficult and kind of perplexing from a political science perspective is the, the current assault on the court by Democrats and by a lot of their media acolytes um, have gone at the legitimacy of the court. Um, and it's, it's unusual for one institution to sort of question the legitimacy of another. And, and you're seeing that with aggressive reporting on, um, you know, the behavior of justices on the court, selectively aggressive reporting, I might add, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, focusing on the conservatives, um, the president talking about this is not a, a usual court. They've done more to erode fundamental rights than any court in recent memory. Those are really assaults designed, as you suggested, to get voters riled up um, and to erode public confidence in the court. That is not unprecedented, but. It, it certainly hasn't been seen in this kind of with this kind of intensity in a long time. 
Well, you talk about FDR and court packing. You know, he made this, uh, you know, fireside, fireside chat. I think this was in March of 1937. And, and he really, you know, kind of amped up his charges against the court. And this is uh, something that's similar uh, that President Biden and the Democrats have been doing lately. Uh, and even if they don't get their way at the Supreme Court, they basically have put the Supreme Court on the ballot in 2024. I mean, uh, you know, you don't often get to choose your opponent in sports. But sometimes you can in politics. Uh, And so they have made the court their opponent here, essentially. And these three decisions, affirmative action, uh, student loans, gay rights, uh, they have taken those issues. And those are three legs of the stool of the uh, kind of, you know, Republican, excuse me, the Democratic uh, platform here that that they use. And that's, you know, each are, are key constituent voting blocks there. And if Democrats can use that to their political advantage, that works getting younger voters to the polls, getting minority voters to the polls who feel aggrieved, even if they can't do something uh, about it. Uh, You know, and you talked about the flukiness of this. You know, some Democrats will talk about, you know, President Trump winning in the Electoral College in 2016, but losing the popular vote. Uh, President uh, George W. Bush winning in the Electoral College, losing the popular vote in 20 uh, in 2000. And, and so, again, you know, that reflects who got on the court. And that's partly why we have this have this conservative court here. How important, though, is it for Democrats to get into those three voting blocks that I talked about, though, to get people to the polls? I mean, we're kind of in uh, it's summertime now, but this is political spring training where you start to, to try out your issues here and see you know who's going to play first base, who's going to play second. And that's what they're looking at as they go into 2024. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there, there's a, a bit of an irony here, which is the decisions have been made. Um, you know, affirmative action is not on the ballot. Um, you know, uh, student loans are not on the ballot. Even going back to the Dobbs decision, abortion is not on the ballot. But you're right. It's it's an attempt to kind of, I guess, uh, tap into outrage or to, or, or to create or harness outrage over these particular issue um, decisions to... Um, hobble together a constellation of voters that can help the Democrats win in 2024. Because the the big issues right now, uh, inflation and prices, um, immigration, crime, uh, parental control over uh, school curriculum, stuff like that, those all, those are the, you know, four of the top six issues. Those are all kind of Republican issues. And what the Democrats did in 2022 very effectively, as you alluded to, was to take little Littler issues, climate change, healthy, not little in terms of substantive importance, but, you know, issues that don't have tons of people saying they're at the top of the agenda. But to use a a, a whole universe of smaller issues to micro target and to mobilize, you know, very, very targeted coalitions. And so you're right. School loans for younger people, affirmative action for minority populations, et cetera. This is kind of the playbook from 2022. You know, I think it probably works, but I'm, I'm I'm a little skeptical that it wouldn't have worked anyway, right? I'm not so sure outrage over the court's decisions are necessary to get some of those constituencies to the polls. The weakest link, by the way, I think is the our younger voters. Um, the notion mm-hmm. that younger voters are going to be mobilized around student loans, I, I think, is kind of a, a dubious notion. Um, and I'm also and of the opinion that? that most people who have student loans, well, not most, a lot of people have student loans. They're actually not in the 18 to 24 year old um, age bracket anymore. They're in the 18 to 29 or in the 30 to 44 bracket. Um, Mm -hmm. Many of them um, went ahead and already, you know, they're looking at this right now and have already paid off appreciable portions of their loans. Um, And they're looking back and saying, well, geez, what, you know, what a sucker I was. I I could have waited around. There's a sort of issue of fairness that leads to more divisiveness, you know, in in opinion on this issue than you might expect. Um, Now, 
whether Republicans can kind of articulate that and harness it, I'm not so sure. It's also just a a low turnout group generally. Let let me ask this too. You know, when when you talk about the student loan issue, and I talked to Don Bacon, who is a centrist Republican in a swing district in Nebraska, Omaha, and Mike Lawler, a Republican from New York, uh, you know, upstate New York, beat Sean Patrick Maloney, who was in charge of the Democrats' uh, re-election efforts in 2022 and, and lost himself. Uh, they've, you know, th- those are two swing districts. I talked to both of them, and they both said something very similar here. They said, well, you know, we have a lot of people, especially Lawler said this, we have people in our district, a lot of them didn't go to college. So why should, you know, they have to pay back a loan from somebody else? Are Republicans almost using this as a, a, a class issue? In other words, you have these ivory tower people yeah. off studying poetry and the humanities, and you got people, uh, you know, who, you know, carry a lunch pail and work in the, the skilled trades or something like that. And, and they're really trying to tap into those two groups and say, OK, look at them. They're over there running around in college. Uh, you're, you know, got grease underneath your fingernails and come vote for us. Is, is some of that going on here, too? Ding, ding, ding. Exactly. Um, I I think that this issue has always been more complicated than people tend to see it. Um, And the kind of, of, you know, we've talked about wedge politics. Well, look, you know, most political issues have two sides. And one of the challenges for Republicans across these issues that we've been talking about, you know, affirmative action, um, abortion, school loans, there are clearly two sides on these issues. And while the Democrats, I think, are kind of tapping into outrage because they've been for the most part, on the losing side in, in legal terms of these issues recently, there's still public policy issues. And the Republican coalition, as you mentioned, is more blue collar, uh, less well-educated than it has been in a long time. Trump has done that. Um, and this, student loans, is an issue that does tap directly into that. Antipathy towards elites, uh, you know, the ruling class, they, they made a deal. Now they're trying to renege on it. And we're supposed to pick up the tab. That's how I think a lot of those people see it. Right. And I guess the other thing, too, and I brought up Don Bacon for a reason. There's a reason we wanted to talk to him. Um, You know, a lot of people don't know that there are two states that allocate their electoral votes by congressional district, Maine and Nebraska. And in 2020, Don Bacon, he won. He won in 2022. He's a Republican congressman. So about a plus two, plus three on the Republican side district there. But President Biden won one of those two electoral votes in that district. Is this enough in a district like that uh, to get some of those more urban liberal uh, voters to the polls uh, in the presidential? Does it help in that sense just to get that one electoral vote because these electoral votes are so prized now? Yeah, I think the the two districts that are really at play are, uh, you know, Nebraska 2, which is Omaha, as you mentioned, um, and then Maine 2. Maine 1 is pretty pretty democratic, but Maine 2 is pretty competitive as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and, yeah, those two prizes... um, are absolutely, you know, they're the swingiest of swing districts, and they're absolutely susceptible to the kinds of short-term issue forces that we're talking about. But, you know, I, I think more generally, so is the state of Nevada, so is the state of Pennsylvania, so is the state of Arizona and Georgia. And and so, yeah, I think what's happening is that there's a smaller and smaller set of targets, places because we're so polarized, there are so few places where the distribution is so tight. But in those places, man, Supreme Court issues, these micro-targetable um, kinds of issues, yeah, they can be worth everything. I think the Democrats, by the way, did a much better job of that in 2022 than the Republicans. I'll be interested to see if the Republicans attempt to be competitive or attempt to fight back on some of these issues or whether they just emphasize their own issue in some of these places where there's going to be firefights in 2024. 
But also coming back to the the Supreme Court, how much of this is also just about the Supreme Court? Uh, can't President mm -hmm. Biden, the Democrats, in addition to talking about the Supreme Court yeah. a lot and these decisions and saying they're out of whack and, you know, they might not have the same resonance as, as the abortion decision, the Dobbs decision last year. You know, that was just kind of electric, especially for the Democrats. Uh, the idea that they can also campaign on saying these guys aren't ruling on the Supreme Court the way you on the left might like or even some moderate Democrats and there might be vacancies and you're going to be better off with a Democratic president nominating a jurist uh, that might agree with your opinions more than somebody from the right, like former President Trump. It's a good point. I mean, I think some of the exit polling data from 2016 showed that a sleeper issue in terms of support for Trump was federal judges, not just the court, you know, Supreme Court, but also f the federal judiciary more generally. That uh, I want to say it was like 14 or 15 percent of, uh, of Trump voters said that was an important factor in their vote. And I mean, it, you know, importance is relative, obviously, but there's a small select number of issues we ask about. That score is pretty high. Um, could the Democrats turn the tables? Um, because Democrats didn't seem to care much about that in, in explaining why they voted for Hillary in 2016. I think that's a really interesting possibility. If, if Biden turns it into a more general indictment, because you think about it, we, we, this week we've heard Biden talk about his economic plan, Bidenomics. I'm not sure Bidenomics is a winner. Okay. Um, but hey, elect me and I'll protect your rights, right? I'll put people on the court who will, you know, protect the interests of younger people or LGBTQ plus or, you know, racial and ethnic minority. That, that properly done could be a broader, more thematic and more broadly appealing issue. Well, Darren, it's been great to talk with you. Very educational. I hope we can do this again sometime. Always a pleasure. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. This year, U.S. lawmakers have held multiple hearings on our nation's electrical grid system, some relating to resiliency, others on the physical security of our grids after recent attacks and not just cyber ones. Leaving my home and 45,000 of my neighbors without power for, uh, in some cases, almost a week. North Carolina Congressman Richard Hudson participated in the Energy, Climate and Grid Security Subcommittee field hearing in Moore County, North Carolina, recalling a shooting attack at a Duke substation three weeks before Christmas last winter. Several other power substations were attacked last year in the Pacific Northwest, some operated by Tacoma Power and Puget Sound Energy. While two men were arrested for the Tacoma attack, accused of being motivated to cut power in order to carry out a burglary, no arrests have been made in North Carolina. Still, it has lawmakers asking questions about physical protections, hardening, security cameras. Historically, natural events, especially severe weather events, present the greatest risk to the system's reliability and resilience. However, we are also facing a growing threat of physical and cyber attacks to our electric grid and other energy infrastructure like pipelines and electric substations. But subcommittee chair Jeff Duncan also questioned Mark Asta, he's Duke's managing director of enterprise security, about how they will respond in the future, as some in Moore County were without power for a week after the attack. Asta explained they're going to refocus their efforts in the event of power outages. We are going to focus on those substations like what you saw at West End this morning, where we cannot switch power. 
We have to use You it. say switch, you're just talking about rerouting, rerouting it, so power. there's no interruption. Yes, sir. Correct. We cannot reroute power. So the customers don't care what route, what circuit their, their electricity comes on. They just want their lights on. But in terms of deterring future physical attacks, there may not be a simple solution as lawmakers consider potential new rules. Well, I've learned we have a long way to go to protect our electrical grid. Larry Bouchon's a Republican congressman from Indiana and a heart surgeon. If you look at what happened there in North Carolina, uh, it wasn't just random. People, you know, some guys out after a few beers pulling out their shotguns or rifles and saying, let's go shoot up a few transformers. This was a planned event. They knew exactly what their target was, uh, and they were able to accomplish their goal pretty easily uh, with the security level that they had at their facility there. But basically climbing a barbed wire fence, there were no security cameras and no other monitoring of the facility. So that's my takeaway. And But the thing is, it's a substantial challenge, right? Because we have thousands and thousands of these facilities across the country. Um, but that's the biggest takeaway. And, you know, if we would have, for example, a government actor or something out there that would decide to uh, right. do this, Looks like it'd be pretty easy, you know, in certain areas. Imagine if they decided they were going to do a few of these in the New York City area and shut down power to, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of people. Well, that's uh, it. Could that's be a substantial my, challenge. So that's the big deal. Yeah, that's one of my other questions. Was it sounded like before the actual hearing, you guys actually went and toured the the substation where the attack happened, um, and I wanted your your thoughts because we've seen some pictures, but. How accessible is is our infrastructure, is our, our power and our electrical grid to physically access? Well, I mean, I think on the micro level like that, you know, with the, each substation, so to speak, it's very accessible. I mean, I think, uh, again, they the pictures uh, would show that they shot the oil-containing uh, facilities that help cool the transformers, which means you drain the oil, the transformers overheat, shuts down the power. Fortunately, the energy company recognized the decrease in oil pressure, and they shut the, the you know they shut the facility down. But it's uh, it's pretty accessible, and mm -hmm. uh, again, it's a big challenge though because we have you know thousands, if not tens of thousands, of these individual facilities across the country. So on a micro level, uh, you know it's pretty easy. You know, a more concerted effort on a macro level to shut down power to, you know, millions of people um, would would take, uh, you know, more planning. But uh, it's, you know, I mean, we in, in, in this country, you know, we have to uh, take a look at the results of this hearing and others uh, and uh, come up with a concerted plan, both the federal government working along with the private sector. That's the key right there is the federal government's not going to be able to alone you know, put more security in these places. It has to be a collaborative effort between the sure. private sector and the federal government. And we still don't have any arrests in this in this case, as well as other mm -hmm. other cases around the country that we had last late last year too, right? There were there were several attacks. I don't know. If, have there been arrests in any of them? Not that I'm aware of. And the one yeah. in North Carolina, they they have not arrested anyone. And I'll just say this: you know, when we talk to the local law enforcement officials, and then the energy company, and then I know the FBI is engaged in this. That's the other thing we need to work on as it relates to this is coordination uh, once you have an event. Because 
it was pretty clear to me that the coordination between the FBI, the energy company, and local law enforcement, you know, the sheriff's office, was not great. And right. uh, when you talk to the local law enforcement privately, they felt like there were barriers in place that help, that are hindering their ability to identify suspects locally hmm. um, because of the bureaucracy of, you know, federal law enforcement at the FBI, as well as, honestly, the energy company, uh, you know, requiring going to court for every document that the local law enforcement wants to obtain. And I asked that question specifically of the energy company during the hearing. And they said, yes, anything that they consider proprietary information, the, the law enforcement has to go to court, which delays things by months and months. So, um, yeah, they don't have any suspects. Partially, you know, they didn't have any security cameras out there, so they have no visual. I was going to ask that, too, about one of my questions for you is because you were in that hearing, you were focused also a little bit on costs, retrofits, like how do you go back and harden? So in in this in this case, you know, um, when we talk about like, I think for a lot of us, we think of critical infrastructure being harmed. We think of like cyber attacks nowadays, right? But as you and I are discussing, this is more like physical attacking the actual um, equipment itself. Um, What I mean, I imagine it could be pretty expensive and you don't want to like necessarily cover it all up. There's a lot of benefit right to having it out in the air and not like um, contained. So what what did you learn or what are you starting to learn or glean about how to protect the the areas um, either with cameras or hardening the 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 exteriors? Yeah, I mean, I think physically to try to protect the a facility like this would be a very daunting task. I mean, and that was explained to us, you know, I mean, you you have the drone technology if people are really interested, like these people were in this in this planned attack of damaging the facility, there's, it's a very difficult task to try to prevent that. And I, so I think that you have to try to figure out, well, what would be the, the most uh, cost-effective and, and effective way to put in some things that will prevent this from happening that will be a deterrent. You know, and one of the deterrents, of course, is that people will be caught, you know, and uh, held accountable. And so I think one of the first steps is to be you have to just have a better sur- surveillance of your facility probably 24 hours a day. And, you know, if you look at uh, there are companies out there that can help uh, provide you that security and assess the location so that you can put security cameras in, the, uh, in place and you can have uh, 24-hour monitoring, which would be a substantial deterrent. But, you know, the company made the point that physically – insulating a facility like this is really not possible. And I would agree with that, but you have to have some deterrent in place. Yeah. You know, something a barbed wire fence. Right. Yeah. I mean, a barbed wire fence, a kid can jump over that. Right. I used to do it when I was a kid. We had, I mean, the high school football field was behind my house and they had the same type of fence. And I, I, I could literally jump over that fence, even with barbed wire in a matter of seconds. So, uh, yeah, they have to have, I think in my view, uh, physical, some monitoring, you know, some, some cameras and uh, surveillance type equipment that would be a deterrent that people know if they do this, that they're going to be caught. And you have, we also probably have to look back maybe, well, what does the law say if you damage one of these facilities? What's federal mm-hmm. law say? What's state law say? 
and make sure that the appropriate punishment's in place, that it's also a deterrent. So I think it's a, an overall review of where we are with this. And it'll, yeah, you, uh, you take the power out to a whole community for a week. There are people who have medical devices relying on that electricity. I mean, it's, it is, it's a bigger deal than just, oh, the power's out. One of the reasons I really wanted to, to speak to you in particular is because you shared at the hearing that you'd gone down to Centerpoint Energy in Houston, and you yes. know, you're from Indiana um, and you were focused in on with them this idea of preparing for an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse attack. Yes. I, I found that obviously fascinating. I think a lot of people do, especially after the, the Chinese spy balloon. There was a lot of talk about, well, what if they were what if an adversary was, you know, getting ready to deploy some, something like that as part of an attack? What did you learn at Centerpoint um, about how to how you could protect the grid in the event of an EMP? Well, right now it'd be a daunting because uh, retrofitting facilities like their facility there in Texas with EMP uh, protection would be pretty daunting and very costly. So they had, we toured, you know, their, their new facility where all of the, uh, I'll say the electronics, so to speak, that runs the, runs their, their grid is 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 contained and they proactively when they built the new building put in pretty high-tech system to protect against emp attacks now that's not my my area of expertise about how you do that but they but they showed us pretty uh, extensive um things that were physically in the walls and the floors hmm. uh, that would protect against against this so retrofitting facilities across the country to protect against this against this would be pretty daunting. And I, I think, again, that's another one where we have to recognize that we have to have some deterrence in place. And one of those would be, you know, punishment if you're caught doing this. Um, but I also think, you know, it would be, even though there is a risk, I don't think particularly that countries like China, for example, would put themselves out there and try to attack our grid uh, proactively, um, you know, in a large way. I mean, I think you might find some smaller, um, uh, countries, you know, like North Korea, for example, that might mm -hmm. try to do this, but it would be, they'd have to be more sophisticated. So the risk and the risk to say domestic terrorists and stuff to do this is probably pretty low. Um, however, um, I was pretty impressed with what Centerpoint had done proactively when they built their new facility. And I think companies need to consider that. Yeah, it sounded like Duke Energy, when you were talking to them, he, his response to what are we doing on the EMP front was, we're working closely with the Electric Power Research Institute, which is currently doing a study on EMPs. I guess it's on it's on the radar. It's on somebody's mind. If there's a, an institute doing a study about it, are you um, anticipating the results of, of that study? Or should we eagerly anticipate what they come up with or advise in terms of preparing? Yeah, I mean, by, with my visit to Centerpoint, I think their study is going to show that our you know, facilities are vulnerable to EMP attacks. I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't think it's rocket science here, right? And um, that said, you know, I think the hope would be is that the methods that we would use to prevent it coming out of a study like this would be something that is doable, affordable, uh, you know, 
and that's, I think, what they really want to find out. I mean, at the end of the day, um, we are vulnerable, and it's just how much are we willing to spend and how much are we willing to do to decrease our, uh, you know, our vulnerability to a level that we could accept. Like this facility at Centerpoint, they're not going to have, you know, EMP is not going to be able to shut down their facility, but it costs them uh, millions of dollars, you know, to make that happen when they built their new building. So I think that's the result of the study I, that I would be interested in. Okay, we're vulnerable. We know that. Well, how do we, at a level that we can afford or a level that's doable, prevent these type of attacks mm-hmm. uh, on our facilities? And that's the more important point because, in my view, uh, we're vulnerable. And, and uh, whether or not it happens, I don't know. Again, I, like I said earlier, I think, you know, state-based actors are going to be pretty reluctant to do that because, you know, the reality is the United States also has offensive things that we can do to them. So it's not like we're sitting on our hands here, right? I mean, right. you know, the United States also has the ability to, you know, react as a country if a state-based actor were to try to use this to uh, shut down our power grid. Finally, Congressman, um out of all of this, would you, do you think your colleagues would consider some sort of law, some sort of legislation that would tell energy companies, look, you need to do X, Y, and Z um, to protect your your infrastructure. It's privately owned. Most critical infrastructure in our country is privately owned, but certainly you guys in Congress could enact something. Would you, should you, is that on the, the I guess, the, the list of possible to-dos? Well, that's what we're trying to determine. Yeah, well, how do you strike a strike a balance here where you have cooperation between the private sector, which, as you point out, owns most of the infrastructure, including you know things like pipelines. Like you saw what happened when the one pipeline uh, on the that carried uh, fossil fuel energy to the East Coast uh, was shut down. I mean, Colonial. the gas stations. Yeah, the gas stations. Uh, you know, ran out of gasoline in in Northern Virginia and up the coast. And so, you know, we have to figure out, well, how do we prevent that? And from my perspective, you know, we want to work with the private sector. Um, and I do think we need to have make sure that we have things in place that encourage them to do the right thing and make sure they can protect uh, our critical infrastructure. That said, you know, going forward, if we continue to have instances like the, the pipeline shut, the colonial pipeline shutdown or risks, uh, more broadly of the electrical power grid. And we find out like we did in North Carolina, that there's really not very good security there. And uh, then we're going to have to think, we're going to have to think about it. Yes. I w- I, we're going to have to think about what, what is appropriate uh, at the governmental level to protect our critical infrastructure uh, and protect the American people. So I think we're early in that conversation, even though it seems like we've been talking about this forever and we have on the cyber level, you know, uh, data sharing and that type of thing. You know, the physical type stuff that can happen, uh, like the EMP attacks or the direct attacks to stations like happened in North Carolina. We haven't had a lot of conversation about, but it sounds like we're going to have to. Congressman and Dr. Larry Bouchon, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. 
That'll do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, Congress is back in session. We'll break down a busy week on Capitol Hill, including FBI Director Christopher Wray's expected testimony before a committee on Wednesday. Plus, we'll break down this coming week's NATO summit in Lithuania and President Biden's scheduled meetings with leaders from Finland, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, among others. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jessica Rosenthal from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.